Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, we've talked about systemic racism in sports before, but you know, with the International Olympics just around the corner, now's a good time to talk about whether there's been systemic racism in that esteemed institution. Well, like they say, there's no time like the present. And with several stories in the media regarding Black Black Olympic athletes feeling targeted in this year's games, I think it's time that we take a look to see if we can spot a pattern. Well, patterns are certainly something we should be taking a look at. So let's start back in, I guess, 1932. I want to tell you about Tidy Pickett and Louise Stokes. These were two women who were shut out of the hero's treatment given to other athletes. Now, Tidy Pickett was born in 1914 and grew up in the Chicago neighborhood of Inglewood. Louise Stokes, meanwhile, grew up nearly a thousand miles to the east in Malden, Massachusetts, where she excelled on the track team at Malden High School and became known as the Malden Meteor. She won title after title across New England. Now, Courtney, both Pickett and Stokes aspired to be Olympic athletes, and both made the 1932 Olympic team as part of the 4 by 100 relay pool. Now, the way things worked, the actual racers who would run the race would be selected from this pool at the games themselves. So in the lead up to the 1932 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, Pickett and Stokes, who were just 17 and 18 years old, respectively, unfortunately, they were subjected to Jim Crow. And uh, here are some examples. In Denver, on the train en route to Los Angeles, they were given a separate room near a service area where they ate their dinner or in their rooms rather than in the banquet hall where the rest of the delegation got to eat. Now, although Stokes and Pickett practiced with their teams during the day, they were stranded each night in their dorms or uh, in that separate little dining room as the other runners gathered to eat in the whites only dining room because of course segregation prevented those two young ladies from eating. Now here's another sad story about them that's not systemic racism but it's uh, basically race hatred. That's the way I described it. As the train continued west toward California, the two women, they were sleeping in the bunking compartment that they shared. Stokes was on the top bunk, Pickett was on the bottom. And one of the most well-known women in sport at that time, Mildred Babe Dietrichson, tossed a pitcher of ice water on the sleeping teammates because she was opposed to having Black African Americans on the team. Now, as I said before, Diedrichson's behavior was an example of race hatred. And I was surprised when I saw that story about her, but so be it. 
But like their exclusion from the whites only dining car, systemic racism came into play when the duo were replaced on the four by 100 meter relay by two white athletes, both of whom, get this Courtney, performed slower than Stokes and Pickett at the trials. Now, the duo had to watch from the grandstand as the all-white relay team captured the gold, robbing them of their shot at glory. Now, according to her Chicago Tribune obituary, Pickett went to her grave believing that prejudice, not slowness, kept her out of that competition. And I would be apt to believe her in that story. And I'm so glad that you pointed out the difference between systemic racism, which kept them out of the games and in their dining cars and race hatred, um, because sometimes people get that confused. But either way, what a heartbreaking story. You're so right, Courtney. And let me tell you another story about systemic racism, this time involving Mac Robinson. Now, Mac, whose brother was the celebrated baseball star, Jackie Robinson, graduated from the University of Oregon in 1941 with a degree in physical education. And he was also on the famed 1936 American Olympic track team. Now, when he was at Oregon, Robinson won numerous titles and set a school record in the 220-yard hurdles. Now, along with the rest of the Black African-American athletes who performed remarkably well at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, he contributed by winning a silver medal in the 200 meters just behind Jesse Owens, the star. But here's where the systemic racism comes in, Courtney. Despite his accomplishments, which included bringing home an Olympic silver medal, when he applied for work with the city of Pasadena, he was given a push cart and a broom and assigned to work as a street sweeper on the night shift. Now, on cold nights, he wore his Olympic jacket, much to the irritation of many local residents. Basically, what you see here is a Black African-American Olympic star with a college degree barred from a good job because of the policies at the time, he couldn't get what would be considered whites only jobs. He was only considered good enough to sweep streets. Wow. I mean, we all know Jackie Robinson, but these policies and procedures kept those kids in Pasadena from getting a great education from an Olympic athlete whose brother was a professional athlete on top of being college educated. This is what we're talking about when we talk about systemic racism. You got it, Courtney. Now, systemic racism isn't the only thing that has shaken up the Olympic Games or has limit, limited Olympians after they've returned home. Political statements and unrest have been a part of the Games throughout their history. Isn't that right? Exactly, and Carol, even though Olympic organizers paint the games as a neutral ground for healthy competition, since the first modern day Olympics in 1896, politics have played a part in the international competition, national rivalry, social causes, and individual group protests have taken place at several Olympic games. They have indeed. They have indeed. Now let's jump back to 1936 and that team Mac Robinson was on. One of the most memorable events a lot of people remember in 1936 was when Jesse Owens, the stellar track phenom, dominated the track and field events. The celebrated athlete story is 
is one of the best known from the controversial games and arguably the entire history of the Olympics. But there's a protest that's involved with his uh, Olympic participation that I would consider a less well-known element of his time in Berlin. It was actually the impact he had on his German athletic rival, a man named Luz Long, which actually uh, proved to be a sort of a protest. Now, here's how the story goes. While trying to qualify for the long jump finals, Owens filed his attempts, leaving him with only one chance to qualify for the finals. It was at this crucial juncture that Long, a German, blonde hair, blue eyed, who uh, Hitler would have uh, held up as an example of uh, Aryan superiority, he went to Owens in front of the entire German crowd and Hitler and suggested that Owens change his mark and take off well before the foul line in order to avoid filing the last attempt. Now, that was sportsmanship. So listening to Long's advice, Owen sprinted on his final try and leaped into the air a foot before the foul line, qualifying for the final alongside Luz Long. Now, as it turned out during the finals, Owens bagged the gold, setting a new Olympic record, while Long grabbed the silver. The crowd in Berlin, including Hitler, should have been and probably were very disappointed by what they saw. But get this, Long wasn't. The German was the first to congratulate Owens and later walked around the stadium arm in arm in him. The duo even posed together for pictures. That action, it was seen as a rebuke of German ruler Adolf Hitler's Aryan supremacy ideas. And it was a form of protest using the games as a backdrop. Now, Long died during World War II. He was a soldier and he died in battle, but Owens kept in touch with his family for many years afterward. But sadly, systemic racism came into play back home. In spite of winning four gold medals at the games held in Nazi-ruled Berlin, Owens was forced to enter through the back door to attend a reception held in his honor in the U.S., That is crazy. It's not unfounded. If people remember our podcast about the uh, the jockeys, uh, Wink Winkleman also had to walk through the back door at banquets in his honor when he would win the Kentucky Derby. So that's not new. But Jesse Owens, the man who disproved Hitler's beliefs about race, was only treated just as bad or maybe even worse back home. Yep, yep, we had a, that was exactly what happened. Now, um, you know, clearly, Courtney, protest and systemic racism seem to have gone hand in hand with the International Olympic Games. And I think you have a story where both of these intersected rather dramatically in 1968. I do and I'll be looking to you and Carol for live you know I was their contribution since you were alive at this time (laughs) very much so I watched it with great intensity now for this generation and my generation the image of Colin Kaepernick and several other 
athletes silently taking a knee during the national anthem, um, the responses to systemic racism and police brutality on behalf of the NBA, the NFL, even uh, the National Hockey League and MLB will be etched into our minds and eventually etched into history. But like we stated, the silent protest of Black athletes has been a long-standing tradition in not only American sports, but on a global level. Now, the image of Tommy Smith John and John Carlos standing barefoot with their glove fists raised in a Black Power and Black Unity salute at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics is now iconic. You can find it everywhere from movies, TV, on t-shirts, and of course on the walls of college students, me included. But like many of these historical moments, they weren't praised uh, for standing up to an unjust system right then and there. And it wasn't until several years after that people even recognized what they did as a positive thing. In 1968 and the subsequent years after, these men and even those associated with them faced backlash from not only their community, the Olympics uh, boards, um, and as well as death threats and other dangerous backlash. But let's start at the beginning like we always do. I remember it well, and I can't wait to hear this story. In 1968, when the Olympics were taking place in uh, Mexico City, civil unrest and racial upheaval was running through America very rampantly. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated, and civil unrest and riots spurred on by King's killing and racial injustice was going through several cities. Vietnam War protests had started on college campuses campuses, but were spreading out nationally. And you will remember this, Aunt Carol, that there was violence, police violence unleashed on Vietnam War protesters at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago that made international headlines. I was glued to the television watching every bit of it, people being clubbed and dragged off, bloody students. It was absolute mayhem. Now, despite Martin Luther King's preaching of nonviolence, by 1968, things were taking a turn and leading towards a more militant approach. With the rise of the Black Power Movement, Black athletes were beginning to understand that they held influence. They were influencers, that's what we call them today, and that they had a large platform that may hold the key to bring change or at least awareness to the racism in America. Now, Amy Bass, a professor of sports at uh, sports studies at Manhattanville College and the author of the books, Not Triumph, Not the Triumph, But the Struggle, the 1968 Olympics and the Making of the Black Athlete, explains it like this. Within the rise of Black power, we see athletes making very necessary connections in terms of the things they face within sports and also the things they face within society and also understanding that athletes had a platform they can use. The spotlight they had was rare for Black men. So being able to commit a peaceful and meaningful global protest was a one in a million chance. 
Yep, yep, it was. And being able to speak out and speak up, it was uh, limited for most Black African-Americans. So uh, having someone who had visibility like these men and other athletes of that time period, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, those, those men became our icons and became our idols. So what was going to be done? There was talk of a boycott, and I'm glad that you brought up Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he did make that choice. Um, now, the other athletes didn't really join in with that sentiment. Um, number one, the U.S. track team at that time was the one of the fastest track teams assembled, and they knew without their Black African-American team members, their chance of winning would dwindle. And many other athletes felt that they had trained and pushed their bodies and competed to the top levels of performance. So they didn't want to boycott and lose that chance. So instead of boycotting, they looked for other ways to protest. Now that brings in two students, two San Jose State students, uh, State, San Jose State University students. That was Tommy Smith, and John Carlos, they were mulling around that question of what could be done. They were already both members and leaders of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, or OPHR, which was founded at San Jose State University by Professor Harry Edwards. Now, the project focused on the welfare of Black people globally and advocated for Black athletes. Specifically, they fought for the hiring of Black coaches, which we're still doing today, and the barring of South Africa and Rhodesia, now known as Zimbabwe, from the Olympics because they practiced apartheid. Now, the OPHR believed that America and the media were simply propping up Black athletes like Jackie Robinson and Kenny Washington, who broke barriers in white leagues to show the great strides of racial progress in America, when inevitably it was very little. And Jackie Robinson, if you are familiar with his story, even though he went to the major leagues, he faced all kinds of backlash and even he did his own form of protesting. Now, the main goals and demands of the OPHR included restoring Muhammad Ali's heavyweight boxing title, which had been stripped from him when he publicly opposed the Vietnam War earlier in 1968, and to hire more Black coaches and to remove, and remember this name, he'll come back again, Avery Brundridge as the head of the International Olympics Committee. Brundridge was known as a racist, a sexist, and an anti-Semite throughout his entire tenure leading the Olympics Committee. So the wheels were turning about what kind of protest, if any, would be done. Now, as the men sat and waited and wondered, something happened that would shake both Smith and Carlos to their core. On October 2nd, 1968, 10 days before the summer games would begin, um, the Mexican government violently broke up a peaceful student protest in Mexico City's Three Culture Square. The unarmed protesters were attacked with bulldozers, only then eventually to be fired on by Mexican troops. To this day, the number of victims killed and harmed is a subject content, uh, of contention in the country of Mexico. The government states only four people were killed or harmed, but other students say it was upwards of 3,000 students. 
Now, that's oh, a Courtney. big discrepancy. A big discrepancy. Very big. And in fact, Courtney, 1968 was just a year of upheaval internationally, everywhere. Students were demonstrating and, and basically speaking out and speaking up on behalf of fair treatment. And uh, this situation in Mexico, I remember it as well. So that discrepancy between four people being killed and 3,000 students kind of points up the reason why students were so suspicious of government at that time because they didn't believe the government told the truth or that the government was really acting fairly in many instances, as we probably see here. But back to your story. Exactly. Now, what Smith, what Tommy Smith told Smithsonian Magazine in 2008, he said this, what he saw on the TV, it was a cry for freedom and human rights. We had to be seen because we couldn't be heard. So seeing that happen to the students and knowing what he was going through, that was enough for him. He was ready to do something. So on the morning of October 16th, 1968 after tommy smith won the 200 meter race with a world record time of 19.83 seconds australia and australia peter australia's peter norman finished second with a time of 20.6 seconds and john carlos finished third with 20.10 seconds smith and carlos knew they now had the perfect stage to host their protest well, Courtney, I was in high school, as you pointed out, during these turbulent times. And my eyes, as, as well as uh, my fellow students and other friends and family members, we were glued on the Olympics that summer, as well as on the social unrest that was going on through America and around the world, actually, you know, protest over apartheid in South Africa, protest over apartheid in Rhodesia, soon to become Zimbabwe, um, protest in America about the Vietnam War. I just, I, it was upheaval after upheaval. Now, I can't say I don't know how all this turns out, as many of our listeners also know, but it's still a dramatic story nonetheless. So we're going to take a break and then we come back to hear how it all wrapped up. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. Well, Courtney, we are back. And you set the stage for why Tommy Smith and John Carlos were contemplating a protest at the Mexico Olympics. So what did they finally decide to do in 1968? Well, when we left off, Aunt Carol, Tommy Smith and John Carlos had won just won gold and bronze, respectively, in the 200-meter race during the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City. So now they were ready to make their statements. Smith and Carlos decided to appear on the podium bearing symbols of protest and strength. They took off their shoes and left on their black socked feet to bring attention to black poverty, beads to protest the lynchings of black African-Americans and raised gloved fists to represent their solidarity and support with black people and, pro and oppressed people around the world. 
So they really thought this through. Everything they did was symbolic and meaningful. Exactly. John uh, Carlos uh, wrote in his autobiography, I looked at my feet in my high socks and thought about all the black poverty I had seen from Harlem to East Texas. I fingered my beads and thought about the pictures I had seen of the strange fruit swinging from the poplar trees in the South. So you're right. They put so much thought into this, but not to leave out Peter Norman, which is someone that almost always gets left out because he's just standing there as if he doesn't know what's going on. And for years, I thought that he didn't know what was going on, but I was wrong. If it wasn't for Peter Norman, the Australian runner who had gotten the silver medal, the most iconic part of the image would have never happened. Hmm. Now, so uh, Norman is going to play a role in this i'm anxious to hear he's definitely going to play a role now both carlos and smith had wanted to raise their right fist in the black power salute so if you don't know if your right fist is up that's for black power if your left fist is up that's for black unity and strength but as they were preparing to walk out john carlos realized that he had forgotten his gloves now as a quick fix peter norman said, well, just share, share your, your gloves, one wear one and one wear the other. So that's why in the photo, one man has his left fist up and the other one has its right, but they both have the same kind of meaning. Also, Peter Norman said, how can I, how can I support you? Um, how can I, you know, be a part of this? What can I do? Well, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, um, offered him one of the patches of the OPHR that he would wear because Peter Norman was no stranger to racism against people of color. His parents were Salvation Army missionaries in Australia, and he had seen firsthand how the Aboriginal tribes, which were the people of color in Australia, the native people, the indigenous people were treated and the horrible things that were being done to them. So he wanted to stand in solidarity with his new friends that he had been running with. So although his fist is not in the he is fully aware of what's going on and his stance is very very clear by wearing that badge so that badge the olympic project for human rights that was his statement of saying i stand with these men and i stand for human rights exactly now back to that balmy night in 1968 now as the star spangled banner began to play smith and carlos lowered their heads and raised their glove fists And here's an actual quote from Carlos about that night. The stadium became eerily quiet, Carlos recalls in his memoir. There's something awful about hearing 50,000 people go silent, like being in the eye of a hurricane. He remembered that then some spectators began to boo while others shouted the national anthem at them in defiance. They screamed to the point that it seemed like less, less like a national anthem and more like a barbaric call to arms. So they were under attack, just even the way people were singing the national anthem. And that really leans into what Colin Kaepernick and other athletes have experienced the same, the same tactic, screaming, yelling, racial epithets, all that for a silent protest. Mm. 
Now, author Amy Bass explains in her book how big the impact was on the world stage. She says this, it was a big deal. Before that, you had sort of 15 minute snippets of updates. And then suddenly you had 44 hours of coverage. So they're like 400 million eyes on Smith and Carlos. That's the power of post-World War II media. And now in our day and age, you've got Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. But I can imagine at that point just having TV, but it just constantly what, you know, what they had done had spread all around the world. It did, Courtney. And you couldn't turn on the television without seeing it flashed on TV and to have commentators talk very negatively about what they did. Now, of course, I was in high school at the time, and that was my definitely my revolutionary days. And um, my friends and I, we were all 100 percent in in unity and agreement with what they had done. So, um, yeah, we saw the the span of, of um, opinions. It ran the gamut from people hating what had happened to people like myself who said, hey, great, right on, power to the people, Black power, let's go. Now, for their for what for their piece for protest, Smith and Carlos were immediately suspended from the U.S. Olympic team and forced out of the Olympic uh, village. And this brings Mr. Brundage back in because the U.S. Olympic team said, no, they don't they're not going to leave. They, we want them to stay. And he threatened that if they don't leave, the whole team will be kicked out of the games and forfeit their wins. Mm. So the gentlemen just gracefully left. Now, death threats awaited them when they made it back to the United States. They were seen as traitors and and villains by a large majority of Americans. And both experienced major personal challenges. Their marriages fell apart and they had difficulty getting employment for many years. Uh, now the- it's tough to stand up for what you believe in. And these men stood up for what they believed in and they, they paid the cost. Now, things began to take a little bit of a turn. The pair briefly became NFL players with Smith playing three seasons for the Cincinnati Bengals and Carlos playing one year for the Philadelphia Eagles and another for the Canadian Football League. And Carlos, John Carlos, went on to become a community liaison for the 1984 Olympics. Um, Both men have worked in uh, educational settings. Now, in 1972, Tommy Smith coached track at Oberlin College, and they were very accepting because Oberlin has an institution that's known for being racially progressive um, and forward thinking. Smith taught uh, sociology and coached cross country at Santa Monica College near Los Angeles. And Carlos took a job as a guidance counselor at Palm Springs High School in Southern California. Well, what I love about this, Courtney, is that both of these men were in positions in education where they could influence young people and be models in terms of what they had done. I'm glad that they were able to lead that on, too. But both men want to make it very, very clear that there was a rumor going around they were stripped of their medals. They were never stripped of their medals. But both of them look at them as okay, we have a medal. John Carlos is, is, was at his grandmother's house and Tommy Smith kept his at a family member's and Peter Norman used his as a doorstop. Well, it shows you what they thought of those medals. Now in 19, I'm sorry, in 2008, 
40 years after they raised their fist during the Olympic medal ceremony, Smith and Carlos were honored with the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage. Um, now, after they were awarded the Arthur Ashe Award at the ESPYs in 2008, eight years later in 2016, President Barack Obama recognized them during a White House ceremony. And he said this during his speech. Their powerful silent protest in 1968 was controversial, but it woke folks up and created a greater opportunity for those that followed. And they were asked to become U.S. Olympic Committee, Committee ambassadors by President Obama in 2016. Now, their gesture is considered one of the most political statements in the history of the modern Olympic Games. But Smith remarked in his HBO documentary, Fist of Freedom, the story behind the 68 Summer Games, that the act did not symbolize hatred for the U.S. flag at all, but acknowledgement of it. And I highly re recommend anyone who wants to learn more about these games, not just that moment, but the games in 1968, please watch that documentary. I learned so much. Well, Courtney, this is quite a story. And even though I lived through the events that you described, you provided some other insights and, and uh, dimensions on the story that I myself did not, did not know. And as is so often in the case, it takes many years for someone to be vindicated for their actions and shown to have come down on the right side of history. So I'm pleased to know that Smith and Carlos remain symbols of both defiance and triumph because it appears that after many, many years, they actually uh, received the kudos they should have received and the treatment that elevated them uh, to the level of respect that they deserved. Indeed, Aunt Carol, but I believe that the protest by Black African-American track stars did not end in 1968 with Smith and, Smith and Carlos. Something tells me that was only the beginning. You are right, my dear niece. It did not end with Smith and Carlos. Let's take a look at the 1972 Munich Olympics when Vince Matthews and Wayne Collette were banned from the Olympics after the 400-meter award ceremony. Now, Matthews accepted his gold medal while wearing his official sweatsuit, and his jacket was unzipped over a gray shirt uh, that uh, showed his sweat-soaked upper chest. Colette received his silver medal barefoot in his racing shorts with his team sweatsuit top unzipped over his racing singlet. Now, their dress was decidedly much more casual than was customary for a medal ceremony. As, as if any of you have watched these medal ceremonies, most times the athletes change into these fancy, clean matching outfits, you know, the designer ones that somebody has made for them. Now, as the Star Spangled Banner began playing, Colette stepped onto the top step of the victory stand with Matthews. And throughout the duration of the anthem, Colette had his hands on his hips while Matthews rubbed his neck and his goatee, crossed his arms and reset his feet. Now, as Matthews walked off, he removed his medal and twirled it around his finger, you know, kind of like you would see a gym teacher take a, a whistle and kind of turn it around. And the response in the stadium was instantaneous and negative as soon as the anthem ended. Dwight Chapin of the Los Angeles Times wrote, the boos and whistling began when they stepped down. Now, the two men disappeared into a tunnel 
But then Colette returned to retrieve his sweats. And as he walked away for a second time, he raised his right fist while looking up toward U.S. athletes in the stands. There were more whistles. It all happened in just a few moments, but would likely become the first sentence in their obituaries. One day after the race, the International Olympic Committee banned Matthews and Colette from the Olympic Games for life, including the four by 400 meter relay in Munich. But now they didn't strip them of their medals that they had already won. Now in a letter to the U United States Olympic Co Committee, and here we have the infamous Avery Brundage again, remember him from the Mexico City Games. He wrote, the whole world saw the disgusting display of your two athletes when they received their gold and silver medals for the 400 meter event yesterday. Now the US Olympic Committee asked Brundage to reconsider, reconsider kicking them out for life, but he did not. There was a contentious meeting in the Olympic Village Jesse Owens, remember him, he was brought in much as he had been in Mexico City when Carlos and Smith protested. And he asked Matthews and Colette to apologize. They refused. It was over. Both men went home and banned from the Olympics. Oh, Avery Brundridge. He's going to find himself on my Rutherford B. Hayes list. But here's a fun, well, not so fun fact about Mr. Brundage. Um, in speaking about the Mexico City games with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, he said it was a nasty demonstration against the American flag by Negroes. But when he was asked why the Nazi salute was okay in the 1936 games, his response was, and he argued that the Nazi salute wasn't a, was a national salute at the time, and it was acceptable um, in a competition of nations, while the athletes in 1968, was, uh, their salute was unacceptable because it was not a, a national salute. Well, Mr. Brundage, he is a very well-documented racist, like I said, anti-Semite and a sexist, and he earned the name by several Black athletes as Slavery Avery. But I do have some good news. On June 10th, 2020, in the midst of our own racial upheaval in my lifetime, um, in the summer of, of racial, racial justice reclaiming, J.U., the director of the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, announced that the bust of this notorious patron, there a lot of their art came from Mr. Brundridge, um, would be removed because of Brundridge's known racism and viewpoints that he expressed that pretty much made him nothing more than a Nazi sympathizer. So that's kind of history trying to correct itself for all the damage that he's done. Well, he definitely, again, I lived through the era of Avery Brundage being, um, you know, involved with the Olympic Committee. And it was clear around the world that his stance and his opinions were not acceptable. But he was a very powerful figure and he stayed in that position for a very, very long time. Now, it's obvious that preventing athletes from protesting or making political stands, really, it's, it's all but impossible. The International Olympic Committee published guidelines recently specifying which types of athlete protests will not be allowed at the 2021 20, uh, Tokyo Games. Now, 
Athletes are prohibited by the Olympic Charter's Rule 50 from taking a political stand in the field of play, like the raised fist of um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Games. Today's Olympians now know more about which acts of divisive disruption, as uh, quote unquote, will lead to disciplinary action in Tokyo. Now they can still express political opinions in official media settings or on social media accounts. Well, now that we've cleared that up about the protest, I guess that's a shady side eye for me. What about systemic racism? Because that's what we do here. We, we talk about systemic racism. And Carol, are there situations today as blatant as what happened to Mac Robinson, Tidy Pickett, Louise Stokes, and even Jesse Owens? Well, yes, yes. And I would categorize that what happened to uh, Smith and uh, Carlos is also systemic racism because the rules basically uh, barred them, kicked them out uh, of the Olympics because of their political stand, which had to do with racism and Black African-Americans. Now, today, uh, some would say there isn't systemic racism. It's just the United States Olympic Committee enforcing its policies. But as we know, policies can be written to disadvantage Black African American Americans. Uh, not two weeks after her win made her the fastest woman in the country, for example, the world awakened to the news that Shakari Richardson had tested positive for THC. It's a can, um, you know, a chemical found in cannabis. It resulted in a 30-day suspension, making her ineligible to compete in her event at the Olympics. Now, in an interview with the Today Show, Richardson apologized and said she consumed the drug after learning of her biological mother's death, and she had smoked it in Oregon, where weed is legal. And not to mention the incident when Michael Phelps smoked marijuana on social media without threat of punishment. He went on to swim without anybody giving it a second thought. Now, Richardson isn't the only athlete to face backlash this year. In June, hammer thrower Gwen Berry was criticized for protesting the national anthem during the U.S. Olympic trials. While her protests didn't result in any punitive action, the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, I'm sorry, the International Olympic Committee said such demonstrations would be banned at the Olympics on the medals podium, on the field, and at the opening and closing ceremonies, as I pointed out earlier. Now, last week, U.S. track star Brianna McNeil lost her appeal of a five-year suspension over competing in the Olympics after missing a drug test in January. She said in an interview she was recovering from an abortion at that time, and that's sad she had to share such personal information about her situation, but uh, she did, and it still didn't make any difference. Now, Color of Change, a nonprofit civil rights advocacy organization tweeted, yet again, the Olympics continue a pattern of selectively and cruelly punishing Black women. And that punishment often spills over um, into other places and forms of media, making disturbing news reports about Black female athletes. For example, Claire Lehman, and I saw this on Twitter as it happened, an Australian journalist and founder of Quillet magazine, caused a stir with a string of tweets implying that Shikari Richardson may have been, you know, suspended for marijuana, but she's probably or suspected that she 
she was on steroids. That's why she wasn't pushing so hard to be retested. She went on to liken Richardson's long, colorful hair and nails and overall speed, who many people contribute that as a homage to Flojo Griffin as a side effect of steroids. Um, her tweet went as followed, not sure whether the nails are real or fake, but in case you didn't know, strong nails and hair can be side effects of steroid abuse. Well, I hate to break it to you, Claire, those nails and hair are not steroids, it's just style. But that just goes to show you the attacks on female athletes when they're allowed by something like the IOC, they can spill over to anywhere. They can, and they do. Beyond the experiences of Richardson, Barry, and McNeil, the Olympics governing body recently issued a ban on soul caps. That's a brand of swim caps designed to meet the hair needs of Black swimmers. The swim caps are made to fit over and protect thick, curly, natural hair, as as well as dreadlocks, weaves, extensions, and braids to uh, keep them from being damaged uh, by chlorine. And this is another example of a policy that is being systemically used against a particular group, in this case, Black African-Americans. Now, be, uh, a quote from Jamel Hill, who uh, wrote about this band, she said, between Shikari Richardson and this, the Olympics really are sending quite a message to Black women. Well, I hope the issue with the soul caps as well as the other attacks on Black female athletes and Olympians are stopped as soon as possible. Now, our listeners must remember when we look at all of these cases, the caps ban, the drug test, all of those things, that systemic racism occurs when policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in various often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. Well, thanks for that reminder, Courtney. These situations that you and I have been describing are all policies and practices of the U.S. and International Olympics committees that set up roadblocks and inequities for Black African-American athletes. Well, I would like to close with a quote by Tommy Smith, which he gave during a press during the press conference after the 1968 Olympic Games where he protested. And I think it sums up how not only a lot of black Olympians feel, but a lot of black American athletes feel as well. If I win, I'm an American, not a black American. But if I did something or do something bad, they would say Negro. We are black and we are proud of being black. Black American, Black America will understand what we did tonight. And with that said, good luck to Team USA and all their events. And for our listeners, if you're looking for something to listen to in between your favorite events or on your way to work or school or play, visit our website at www.podpage.com slash why are they so interesting. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.